Good morning. I'm glad you guys are here this morning. For those of you who don't know, my name's Sean. I am one of the pastors here. And uh, our sermon bumper just played, so we're going to do the book of Matthew, but we're not. It lied. Uh, we're actually going to be, for the next couple of weeks, we're going to be in Ephesians, specifically just in Ephesians 4. So if you have your Bibles, uh, if you have a Bible, if you've got the Bible app, you can go and find your way to Ephesians 4. Uh, we're glad you joined us. If you're at one of our house gatherings this morning, glad you guys are getting together. I hope this time together uh, with some other people is enriching and enlivening and breathing life into your soul as we gather together. Uh, in fact, later in this week, we are going to have some information about what things are going to look like coming forward in addition to our house gathering, some kind of next steps for us. And so I just encourage you to kind of keep an eye out for that. I know I send you like a million emails, but keep an eye out on your emails this week. If you don't get emails from me, uh, if you're not blessed with the goodness of seeing my horrible writing skills, uh, make sure you fill out a Connect card and then you'll make sure you get emails and you'll know what's going on around here. But later this week, we're going to be making some announcements about what our next steps look like as we sort that out for us as a church. Also, as we move towards those next steps, um, at first I just want to say thank you. There's Over the last month or so, there's been a team of volunteers that have come by to do tons of projects around here. It's crazy how in like two weeks, how uh, the earth and all of nature just starts to take over things, right? And so for the last month or so, a group of volunteers have been kind of beating back the impending apocalypse that's been at our property as all these weeds and stuff has just popped up everywhere. And we had weeds growing out of the gutters and all kinds of crazy stuff and, and uh, doing some work on our kids wing. So if you're part of that, thank you very much. And there'll be more opportunities. So watch for emails, sign up on a connect card, get emails, and you can come by and help uh, as we get closer to re-entering our building uh, here in Monmouth. Uh, glad you guys are joining us. So Ephesians Ephesians 4, so to understand Ephesians 4, we're going to look at two different verses uh, that seem completely unrelated to Ephesians 4, and I promise if you'll stick with me, we're going to start in these two unrelated verses, and we're going to navigate our way eventually to start off a conversation on Ephesians 4 today. It's all going to connect together, and it's going to make sense. You just have to walk with me, okay? So the verses we're going to look at are Exodus 20 and Titus Three. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Exodus 20. If you don't, we're going to have it right here up on the screen, and you can follow along with us there, um, and, and you can stay with us here in Exodus 20. So Exodus 20, you, you may or may not know this. If you're a big Bible scholar person, spend a lot of time in church, you may know Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, which is another book in the Old Testament, the, the book of the Hebrews, the, the Jewish Bible, the Jewish scripture, the Torah, um, has the same statements in both passages in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. And we call them the Ten Commandments. We call them the Ten Commandments. Other names have been called the Decalogue, which is the Ten Words. Uh, Jewish rabbis actually refer to them as the Ten Words uh, because they each started with a certain word that was significant and important or the Ten Statements. Right, and, and here's a little interesting factoid is um, that you may notice as we read through it, there's no actual numbers. Like God doesn't say, this is the fourth commandment, you should do this. And so throughout history in the church, uh, we've actually shifted what the different 10 commandments are, not to say that some of these aren't included, but how we define what 10 commandments are, because, I know this is getting deep in the weeds, but it's important, trust me on this, because, because, um, 
800 years ago, a rabbi uh, really formulated what it meant to uh, be a Jew in post-temple Judaism. The Jews don't have a temple anymore. And uh, he came up with a couple things. One of them was 613 laws, right? And uh, 14 of them, he said that the 10 words of, the, of Exodus 20, there was actually 14 commands, right? And um, then in the 14 commands, there were 365 uh, 365 affirming statements. You should do this, you should do this, you should do this, you shouldn't do that. And the remainder of them, which I don't remember off the top of my head, it was like 287, were negative, right? You even see that in the Ten Commandments. We're going to talk about, you know, we'll say, you shall not do this, you shall do this, right? And, and this is what he said, is that their time, the understanding of the body had whatever it was, 287 or something like that, bones and organs. And so this is what the guy said 800 years ago. Isn't this awesome? Listen to this. He, this is what he said. He said that it takes your whole body every day to honor God. That's why there's 613 commands. Now, it doesn't say that in Scripture, but isn't that awesome? 365 commands of what you should do, 287 or whatever the remainder number of them of what you shouldn't do, and they would teach that it takes your whole body every day to honor God, right? But the foundation of those 613 commands come here in Exodus 20, what we call the Ten Commandments. Now, even the first two commandments, how we organize them is different based on religious traditions. And so um, we're just going to look at the first couple verses that contain what eventually becomes the first two commands. So it says this, okay, you've probably heard this before. You've probably seen it written on a tablet, um, not Abraham's tablet, uh, not Moses' tablet, but you've probably seen it written on a tablet somewhere. It says this, verse two, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. And then it continues on in verse four and it says this. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters underneath. Now just pause there for a second. I want you to notice, I don't know if you noticed this before, God differentiates an idol from a likeness. You see that? He, he says them there's two different things. You shall not make for yourself an idol or... See, a lot of times we imagine idols just this simply, right? Like this. Bam! There's my idol. I didn't really have an idol because as a pastor, you shouldn't have idols in your house. That would be a not good thing. But a lot of times when we think of an idol, we think of like a carved wooden structure, right? There's something that represents it. Or we think about the, um, uh, the Israelites right after the Ten Commandments, they carve a golden calf right? And so you've got this uh, idol, and we think of an idol and a likeness being the same thing, but God doesn't say that. He actually says, you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness. You see, there's something in the nature of what it means to have an idol that doesn't necessitate a physical object. And in fact, I would argue that the deepest um, brokenness of our soul isn't the worship of a physical object. That when we have an idol, that often it isn't represented or it isn't bowing down to some thing. So first, Jesus says, you shall not, God says, you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. 
For I, the Lord your God, am jealous God, visiting the iniquities of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not have an idol or any likeness, and you shall not worship them or serve them. This is really the foundation of what it means to be the people of God. You see, a lot of times when we think of the law of God, when we think of laws and rules and that there's 613 commandments, a lot of those have negative connotations for us, right? And, and we like to talk about, New Testament talks about grace and grace, freely given, freely received, grace, grace, right? And, and that's true and that's good, but there's a reason that David celebrated the law of God. There's a reason that David rejoiced that God was so kind to them to give them the law of God. Because before the speaking of these words, the people of the earth did not know what it meant to be the people of God. They didn't know what it meant to be obedient and righteous. And God gives them this gift and he begins to say to them, this is what it looks like to be my people. Now, there's another teaching in uh, rabbinic teaching that talks about the preeminence of the first. And that might seem really obvious, because what it means is that they, the first things are first, that they say the first, the first things said are the most important things, right? First things said are the most important things. But a lot of times in the way we talk and the way we argue, we actually leave the most important thing as like the last thing. Like if you're having an argument and you got three points, you're gonna start with your, with, with your oh, pretty strong one. You're gonna hide your weakest one in the middle and then your kicker's gonna come right at the end because it's the last thing, your best argument you put right at the end. But in rabbinic teaching, in the way they would read the scriptures all throughout, they, they would say it's important what is said first. That what God says First, and these are the first things God says to his people. You shall have no other gods. You shall not make idols. You shall not have likenesses. You shall not worship or serve them. The foundation of what it means to be the people of God, to follow God, is to be people who have no other gods, who have no idols or likenesses, and do not worship or serve anything other than him. This is the, the foundation. Everything else after this, everything else, all the other 600 and uh, what, according to one rabbi, would be 609 other commandments that come after these verses. All those other commandments are founded upon this one truth of what it means to be the people of God. Our second verse our second verse is Titus 3.10. Titus 3.10, it says this. Oh, let me find my knife. I wish I had a softer table. And I could just stab it in there. Wouldn't that be awesome? It kind of ruined my table. Well, let me read you Titus 3.10. You'll understand why a knife's important. It says this. Warn a divisive person once, and then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. You know, this, this verse here in Titus, it's an oddly intense verse, isn't it? Like, if you could think of all throughout Scripture, the things that maybe God would say, warn them once and then twice and have nothing to do with them, I bet a lot of us could come up with a really long list and it wouldn't ever include this word. It's, it's interesting and unique how intense that God speaks through, through Paul to Titus, how intensely he advocates against this one thing in divisiveness. 
But if we read the next verse, and we read it particularly in the message, if we read this passage, we might understand a little bit more why God is so aggressive about this. It says this, warn a quarrelsome, divisive person once or twice, but then be done with him. It's obvious that such a person is out of line, rebellious against God. Be persistent. By persisting in divisiveness, he cuts himself off. You see this word, if we go back to the other version in Titus 3.10, this word divisiveness, uh, you can imagine has the same root as to divide, that that's the nature of what it means to divisive, is to divide. And the picture, one of the most common pictures that the Bible uses when it talks about the church, it talks about the body of Christ, the body of Christ. And you see, the reason God is so aggressively warning against divisiveness is because, as it told us in the message, that divisiveness is actually our act of cutting off a part of, the God, a part of God's body. His body, his bride, the church, severing it, cutting it off. I mean, can you imagine if you walked into your room and saw your child with a hopefully much sharper knife than this, and they were sitting at the table trying to cut their thumb off, you'd like lose it, right? This is why God is so aggressively, maybe unprecedentedly aggressive against divisiveness. I would argue that it is hard to find any other rebellion any other brokenness in all of scripture that God responds with such aggressiveness as divisiveness? He doesn't say warn them, talk with them, disciple them, come beside them, understand their brokenness and empathize with them. He says warn them once, maybe twice, and then have nothing to do with them. Because a divisive person is trying to take something and sever a part of the body of Christ from itself. There is nothing that God shows such shortness towards as divisiveness. So what does a chicken and a knife have to do with one another? Well, if you look at Ephesians, Ephesians 4, verse 27, let's look at this verse. It says this, do not give the devil a foothold. The, the church at Ephesus is an interesting story. Uh, their, their birth is recorded in the book of Acts, and it's, it's this incredible story of eclectic weirdness. Okay? Um, one of the first ladies to join the church at Ephesus is a woman named Lydia, and it says that Lydia dealt in the color purple, which seems like a really weird industry just to like, de but, but it, was, it was a wealthy, expensive, it'd be like to say you deal in diamonds, right? It would, it would, it would connotate that there's some wealth and privilege and, and, and um, um, uh, comfort that goes along with that. It was the color of royalty. It was set aside for a unique sect of people, and it was very expensive. And Lydia is this woman from the East. She's probably um, Asian or, or um, of some uh, Asia minor descent, right? And uh, she's one of the first converts. Then, then the other convert is a jailer, 
Jailer, a lot of times, were retired military guys, right? So think like Roman patriot, aging guy, Roman patriot, blue-collar worker, works with the roughest, most horrible type of people in Rome. And then you've got Lydia, like, floating around with her purple colors, right? So you got just this, this blue-collar and super wealthy. A lot of um, historians, church historians, actually believe that one of the reasons Paul was able to travel so much is because of people like Lydia, probably single-handedly funded his journeys all around um, the known world at the time. And, and, then, and then you add on that, you've got this extreme socioeconomic group over here, this extreme socioeconomic group over here, and then in the middle, what unites them is a girl who's been possessed by demons. Is that not like the weirdest church bite? If you were strategizing how to start a church in a new city, it would not be the jailer, the the, the exhausted blue-collar worker, the demon-possessed girl, and the super wealthy woman from Asia. It wouldn't be how you'd build it. But that's how God brings together his church. And Ephesus has one of the closest places in, in Paul's heart, it seems, throughout Scripture. He writes to them uh, in, in the letter. He, he spends a lot of time with them on his missionary journey, and some incredible things happen in there. And you may know this about um, Ephesus. is uh, They're one of the churches that we have a letter to uh, that, that Jesus writes in the book of Revelation that he sends a letter to them, right? And you may know this. The letter, it says to the church at Ephesus, it says, um, this one thing I have against you, that you've lost your first love. Now, Jesus doesn't go a lot into it other than that. He just says that, and we speculate a lot, and we have a lot of ideas. Here's my opinion on what it is, and it's just that. It's just an opinion. But if you look in Ephesians 3, I think it is, maybe it's Ephesians 2, um, Paul tells them, he says, it's known throughout the whole world of your faith and your love for one another. The thing that was profoundly unique about the church at Ephesus, is it wasn't born out of a Jewish synagogue with common history and story like many of the other churches. It wasn't born from a bunch of people who all looked the same. It was born from a group of people that was so eclectic and weird that sat at the center of culture where there was all these influences rushing through and what set them apart in a world divided was their love for one another. And I think that what Jesus is calling them back to is that they lost their first love, that they lost their love for one another. They lost their uncommon unity one with another. And I think that that's what Paul's addressing in Ephesians 4 and verse 27. We're gonna talk about Ephesians 4 over the next couple weeks. But I think that what Paul is seeing, the writing on the wall, he tells them in the book of Acts, he says, be cautious. Be cautious, there are wolves that will come and they will seek to, you know what he says? He says, to tear you apart to sever you, to divide you. And so he writes these words, do not give the devil a foothold. You see, I fear that we as the church in America may be in or moving into a season where we risk being the most divided we've been since the Civil War. I fear, as your pastor, that our church and churches around America run the temptation of allowing divisiveness to settle into our church and giving a foothold to Satan that he might sever us one from another. 
Do you know um, our tradition, our church, you may not know this, and that's okay, because it doesn't really have a lot to do with what we do today, was born out of a thing called the Restoration Movement, and it was the early 19th century, um, and uh, it was a bunch of pastors from other denominations. It's, it sounds like a bad joke when you start, you know, Presbyter- Presbyterian, a Lutheran, and a Baptist, but that's ha- kind of how we started, and um, uh they, they wanted to restore the church. It was intended to be this unifying movement of bringing these denominations together because their denominational leadership at the time had told them that they couldn't worship together. They couldn't commune one with another. They couldn't share pulpits. And they wanted to see the church be the church. So they'd say things like, uh, not the only Christians, but Christians only. You know what happened in the late 19th century? This movement of unity fractured. Now, you have churches like us that are called non-denominational Christian churches, Monmouth Christian Church, and then you probably also have seen around churches that are called Church of Christ, and they're largely non-instrumental Church of Christ. And uh, they allowed, in a post-Civil War America, in a Reconstruction South and an industrialized wealthy North, they allowed division to creep in, and they allowed themselves to be severed one from another. And it's the most crazy story. Why? You know why? Because they were beginning to incorporate into worship this rambunctious, rebellious tool that was used in bars and places of ill repute called a piano. A piano. Because you see, the North, it was seen as extravagance, was spending money on these expensive pianos and the South couldn't afford it. And they allowed divisiveness to settle into their church and sever themselves one from another. And it's taken almost 150 years for God to heal the brokenness between our two movements that was intended to be a unifying movement. Paul begins Ephesians 4 with this. As a prisoner of the Lord... Then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling with which you've received. Okay, so Paul's going to tell us. This way, he's going to tell us in these next verses what it means to live a life worthy of the calling. Okay, so this is really important. Breathe this in right here. This is what it means to live a worthy life, according to Paul, to the church at Ephesus. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient Bearing with one another in love. I love that he puts that. (laughs) Bearing with one another. Enduring with one another in love. Make every effort. Not a lot. Not some. Not to the extent that you can muster. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. And it goes on. And it says this in verse 4. For there is one body. There is one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Do you think Paul's trying to make a point? The same that he makes to Titus is there is no place for divisiveness, for division, that it gives the devil a foothold when we allow our opinions and preferences to sever us. See, what does Titus Three, Exodus 20 and Ephesians all have to do together. Idols don't have to be things. 
far too many of us have allowed our opinions and preferences to become our idols, have become the measurement to admission into our group. And we have allowed our opinions to become idols that we have worshipped and served. And those who don't share our opinion are on the outside or the other side or the enemy. And we have severed one from another. I wonder. I wonder what would it look like What would it look like for the church to live out Exodus 20? No other God, no idols, no likenesses, to worship and serve him only. To pour everything that we have into the pursuit of knowing him and others knowing him. That we allowed, that we didn't allow any of our opinions, views, preferences, politics to create a foothold for Satan to divide the church, to crush the message of the gospel of peace that Paul tells us to make every effort. Next week, next week we're going to talk about the beautiful gift and the witness into a broken and fractured world that a united church is. But today, as your pastor, I want to call you to be honest with yourself. And are there times and ways where you've allowed your opinions and preferences to become idols that you served and worshipped? Have you prioritized your opinions over unity? over humility, over Jesus Christ himself. I, uh, I heard a quote years ago, and it said this. It said, you cannot claim to love God and not love the things that he loves. And his greatest love is his church. And I wonder... I wonder how often when God looks down at his church, instead of a people he sees fully devoted, bearing with one another in humility and grace, using every effort they have to pursue peace one with another, he finds us on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter severing, destroying, crushing the thing that Christ gave his life for. Church. It will be painful, difficult, and hard to crush our idols. And our hearts will often want to wander back, look at the people of Israel. Right after these commands that he gives to them, they go and build a golden calf to worship. But it is what it means to be the people of God, a people who have no idols, who who worship and serve nothing besides our good and merciful God. So this morning, what is it? What is it for you that you've set up as an idol, your opinions or preferences, that you have allowed Satan to have a foothold in causing division in his church?